This episode is brought to you by Vincent's. They understand the challenges of running a business and the importance of having the right advisor to support your journey. Vincent's team of experts can help your business from every angle, specialising in advisory, tax, lending, human resource management, and even restructuring. Visit vincents.com.au or drop them a line and they can connect you with the right advisor for your business. Credited as being instrumental in the rise of the firm that brought the share market to mum and dad investors. Our next guest is Tim Cromlin of Morgan's Financial Limited, Australia's largest full-service stockbroking and wealth management network. Tim played a crucial role in the formative years of the company, having started in 1986 and working closely with founder Paul Morgan. As you will hear, Tim has lived and breathed the market since he was 19 years old, after he failed a handful of uni subjects and was forced to get a job to fund his studies. Tim has seen brutal bear markets and incredible bull runs throughout his career that spans not just broking, but also corporate finance, as Morgan's was built to a company that today has more than 240,000 client accounts, 500 authorised representatives, 59 branches, and close to 1,000 employees with offices in all states and territories. Morgan's rich history includes raising over $30 billion in new capital and over 1,500 transactions, including for ASX market stalwarts Domino's, LaVisa, Data3, Beacon Lighting, and the Bank of Queensland. As the financial services and stockbroking industry has changed, Morgan's has adapted, and as Tim will go on to explain, Morgan's, which has recorded a profit every year since its inception, looks set for a bright future. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. I'm Will. And I'm Charlie. On today's podcast, we delve into Tim's former years and how he was drawn to the stockbroking industry. We explore the rich history of Morgan's and the role Tim played in its formation. And we explore some of the topical issues facing the finance industry currently. We hope you enjoy. Yeah. All right. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. Today we are very lucky to be joined by Tim Cromlin from Morgan's Financial Limited. Thank you for joining us, Tim. Pleasure. Thanks for your time today, Tim. Um, so the first question we'd like to start out asking our guests is what was their first job? Is there probably a good story behind it or something you learnt? So yeah, right. start with that. Well, my first full-time job uh, is that uh, I obviously had a few jobs when I was going through school that ranged anywhere from uh, working in the basement at Woolworths where we used to <laughs> pack cardboard boxes, but... First, uh, or two, actually, I was a postman uh, during really? Christmas oh, holidays. Geez. used to ride the bike and deliver Far the out. mail around the, the local district. So I got to know every street in Ashgrove because I had a job for when I was in grade 11 and grade 12 doing that uh, and got bitten by a, Fred Casey, was the uh, <laughs> uh, heavyweight boxing champion. Uh, <laughs> in, uh, and it was Fred Casey's dog who bit me as I'm trying to deliver the mail. But anyway. Yeah. Big, big Staffy or something, was it? Yeah, yeah, and Fred was, he was very apologetic, but uh, I certainly, <laughs> I certainly couldn't take issue with Fred. <laughs> anyway, that, uh, not here to discuss that, but my first full time job was in 1968. I was. Uh, 19, I think I'd uh, actually uh, failed a lump of subjects at uh, university at the end of my second year there, playing too much sport and probably yeah. extracurricular activities. <laughs> uh, so I uh, lost my Commonwealth scholarship, which they used to have in those days, oh, so oh, yeah. had to get a job to continue pay to pay for my education. Um, <laughs> And I got a job in the back office of a stockbroking firm, Corsa, Henderson and Hale. 
yeah, yeah. as they uh, became, uh, or as they were then, and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to get a job uh, only because somehow some, uh, someone knew that I was out looking for work and they were short for people in the back office and my first job in the stockbroking office was I used to stuff contract notes when there was a transaction, the client always got his client yeah. contract note posted to them. I used to stuff the contract note into the envelope with a transfer form that they'd sign if they'd sold the shares, yeah. and uh, then lick the uh, <laughs> lick the envelope. So that was my first job, and then I graduated uh, after a couple of months to being a script clerk. Uh, and um, anyway, after a year or so, I uh, and I went to uni at night during that time. Took, wow, me, another, yeah. took me another five years to uh, finish my degree, yeah. but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually liked going to uni at night and mm. uh, worked uh, during the yeah. day, and uh, markets were very... I just found markets very interesting, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I was lucky enough eventually to get from upstairs to downstairs as it was in the building downstairs yeah. was uh, and I had a job as a trainee operator on uh, the uh, trading floor yeah yeah and uh, the head operator uh, ended up uh, buzzing off to Sydney for some reason don't know what what was behind all of that so I was uh, <laughs> thrust into the job of being an operator on the trading floor oh, for geez. a number of years so that, that was really good yeah, well, yeah, so I guess, I mean, our next question was what drew you toward the, the broking or financial services industry from a young age, but I guess you were sort of forced but into it because you failed your uni subjects and then... <laughs> forced, forced, forced into it and knew very little about it, yeah. uh, but found it very interesting yeah. and it was very interesting being on the trading floor yeah. Mm. Yeah. and uh, seeing all the different activities of operators and people yeah, yeah. And, mm long-time people that had worked there and uh, anyway it was a quite a quite quite an interesting time also in Australian capital markets yeah, in the late yeah. late 60s that was there was and the there was a big nickel uh, yeah. Poseidon and yeah. Tasmanex nickel booms so I was in the middle of that yeah plenty yeah. plenty going on and yeah, yeah I suppose yeah. that probably brings us um, a little bit further down the track to uh, Morgan's. So yep. Morgan's um, was founded in 1982 by Paul Morgan with just five staff and you um, lately joined or you later joined in 1986. Can you speak to those early years um, of, of your time at Morgan's and yeah, um, talk to those formative um, years? Yeah, I can. As you said, Morgan's was founded in 1982. Yep. Uh, I'd got out of the industry um, Oh, yeah. and I'd left Corsa Henderson and Hale in 1974. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, the reason for that, uh, I, uh, the family dentist, a fellow called Dr Nick Gertis, who was a dentist, supposedly full-time, but a property developer part-time, <laughs> needed someone to work with him, and uh, he knew me, so he offered me a job. And uh, I said to him, well, I can't uh, even read a rate notice, so I know nothing about property. <laughs> and he said, no, that doesn't matter. Uh, well, you can learn what we do and whatever. And uh, so uh, I said, well, look, I'm going overseas for three months to play cricket. I'd finished oh, my really? degree at this stage, 1973, and it was early 74. 
I was going overseas travelling with a, an Australian old collegian side. Oh, wow. Well, and uh, which was very entertaining three months, I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, I said, so he said, oh, that'll be fine. You can start when you get back. And I said, what do I, what do I get paid? Uh, and he said, what do you get paid now? And I think I was getting five there. What? Yeah, no, that's right. I was getting $5,300. And, like, you, and he offered me eleven thousand dollars. Oh, and I thought, well, this is pretty good. So from, I couldn't read a rate notice, but I accepted the job. Went overseas, played cricket for three months on this tour, where we went to the UK, South America, oh, wow. and West oh. Indies, and whatever. And then came back and started with Nick, and I stayed with Nick Gertis from 1974 through to 19, early 86, when I yep. joined, joined Morgan's. Mm. And background there was Paul Morgan had been a mate of mine from back in the days on the trading floor and oh. also oh, school yeah. days, even though we went to different schools. We yeah, yeah. known each other. We had a sporting background. And he'd linked up with Peter Evans, Yep. who's a long-time Morgan's person and yep. one of the original Bench. founders. Yep. Peter Evans a bit younger than me, but I'd played cricket with him in Colts and so I had a sporting background with he and his brother, Jack Evans, who was yep. part of Morgan's in 1982. And so I'd known them well. And in 1982, uh, working for Nick Gertis, I leased a small office to them on the uh, upper level of the Piccadilly Arcade, which is no longer yeah. there, but some old timers might remember <laughs> it. But uh, downstairs in the basement area, it had three levels, the basement shops downstairs, um, where the you and I get together agency. No, that you and I, sorry, it was the primitive cafe was downstairs <laughs> where lots of different things went on in those days, early forerunner to coffee shops and or other things. <laughs> And then you walked upstairs to the upper level, which uh, you had to go past the you and I get-together agency. <laughs> and then you walked right down the back of the Piccadilly Arcade all the way to the Adelaide Street end. Yeah. And there was this uh, horrible little area down there, uh, which was a, a room not much bigger than the one we're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And about five of them packed into that. <laughs> and that was the start of Morgan's in 82. Uh, and those That's years crazy. were pretty... Uh, crazy years. Uh, just a few stats back in 82 I, I remember pretty well because I went overseas and did a course for eight weeks during yeah. that year at uh, mm. University of Honolulu which was oh, yeah. a business management course which was good fun being on the yeah, beach well. every day. That's, that's like a key. Say, oh, yeah. Very strategic yeah, decision of your team. Very yeah. good. <laughs> uh, lucky enough to do it. My employer Nick Gertis at the time had uh, paid for me airfares and accommodation oh, wow. and I had oh, to yeah. pay for the up the upkeep while I was there for the eight weeks but just a couple of stats back in that time in 1982 yeah. the ASX index was 480 uh, in call it October 82 the ASX yeah. index was 480 points yeah. and the US the Dow if we take that uh, was 784 points <laughs> and you know today we're at what in Australia 7,300 7, yeah. and the US is 35,000 yeah so uh, it sure changed a bit but so that was <laughs> uh, that was 82 so I had a close relationship with Paul Morgan and Peter Evans and I'd been the uh, party to renting in the office space and uh, uh, from that point 
though, up to 1984, working with Nick Gertis, we built an office building at 410 Queen Street, oh, yeah. which uh, was the old Bank of New Zealand building. Yep. Yep. And our office moved to the 14th floor, and Paul oh, Morgan yeah. and Peter Evans had grown the business from 82 to 85. Uh, and in what were pretty wild years in the ASX capital markets, uh, we we moved them in, the Morgan stockbroking, into level 10. So <laughs> yeah. I used to go up and down in the lift every day with Peter Evans and Paul Morgan and others and drop in there every afternoon at 5.30 for a beer. <laughs> and uh, ha ha having a close working relationship with them, I joined them in 1986. Yeah. So that's uh, background then. Those... Uh, Early years, which I call the foundation years of Morgan's, were really 82 to 87. Yeah, yeah. And the background for Morgan's there, um, a number of things which I call the Paul and Peter principles really uh, underpinned Morgan's thinking then, but to, to very much today, and that, those Paul and Peter principles were firstly respect for employees Yep. which really became a mantra of ours of sharing of equity and ownership mm. and uh, determination not to have a revolving door with staff yeah yeah uh, based on whether the market went up or down because a lot of people used to leave the market go and drive taxis when um, uh, times wow. were crook, oh, and, and then come back into the industry so secondly was we had to have to survive we had to have a can-do attitude which mm. was uh, assisting small and mid-cap companies grow and helping them raise new capital. And the third thing was we had an absolute commitment to private client broking uh, where uh, we wanted to go where the people were and that was a commitment to a branch structure which is still a very big part of Morgan's today given mm. we've got 59 branches. So that's been the, the passion for 40 yeah. years. Yeah. So you mentioned um, those things that have stayed the same. Over those years, there's probably a lot that's changed as well. How um, how was it trying to keep Morgans in line with the way the sort of financial landscape would change where, you know, I guess you've gone from sending out contract notes via the mail to everything's done now electronically. How did you guys manage those changes over the years? Well, it evolved. It, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. And yeah, the yeah. formative years were really 82 to 87. Yeah. Probably the crash, well, the crash came in 87. Uh, yeah. The US market was about 5,500 and it halved overnight down to 2,700. <laughs> and in those days, you didn't have screens or whatever. Yeah, you used yeah. to get the message on the phone or try to oh, understand or hear it on the radio what had happened so you can imagine the panic yeah, yeah, people yeah. wondering if the world was coming to an end Queen Street would have been going crazy yeah yeah <laughs> so uh anyway uh and it was uh but uh 87 to uh 90 were really rough times and yeah, this is yeah has change started, really rough times in capital markets, yeah. interest rates going through the roof and whatever. Yeah. And, and the second stage of Morgan's growth really became 1990 through to 2000, mm, where yeah. some stability, and that's where we got control of ownership of the whole business, yeah, and a group yeah. of us uh, uh, started from 1990 
the question you are asking around change and technology, it kind of evolved. And I'll do, yeah. tell you just a quick story that yeah. in 1995, halfway through that decade, Peter Evans and I were at a, a stockbroking conference yeah. and they had this guru out from America telling us all about technology and what was going to happen. <laughs> it was going to cha change the world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the internet was just starting to come in and usage of that and... And he said, um, and someone asked the question of him and said, well, tell us what's, where do you go? What happens with the money? Who's going to prosper? Who's going to not? And he said, well, I can't tell you who'll be the winners and who'll, but he said, I can tell you who the losers are going to be. Yeah. And he said, I'm sorry to say it because I'm a guest here, but he said, stockbroking will go out of existence because the whole lot capital markets will be run through screens. Technology will drive all of that and there is no future in the industry for stockbrokers, so that's probably a sobering thought for you. And then, <laughs> and then he said, and the other area that is never going to work is the travel sector because it will all be done online. And I turned to Peter Evans, so I said, Jesus, mate, you know, we're sort of five years into this new structure of Morgans and been going okay, yeah, but, you know, we're going to get blown away with internet broking and all the rest of it. And we're trying to float Flight Centre. We're about to go on the road. <laughs> I was thinking and, that. Uh, I was you thinking know, Flight Centre being a $100 million company at that time and going to go out of business. Well, uh, fortunately, he was wrong on both counts. Flight <laughs> Centre's now a $3.5 billion business. Our business, um, between 95 leading up to when you talk a lot about changes, yeah, yeah. our business... 95 through to 2002, which were the AB and AMRO era, I yep. suppose, uh, doubled. Really? Uh, and internet broking actually brought so many more people into the market yeah. in that it gave people the opportunity to uh, online broking. More accessible. People, yeah. people got to understand what capital markets were about a bit. Uh, people used to dabble online mm. uh, and what they wanted ultimately was a relationship with someone who yep. would give them advice. Yep. So many people had multiple relationships. It might have been with Comsec and it was with Morgans <laughs> or it was with another online broker. So it was, a, it was really a wonderful time and a wonderful yeah. time for capital raisings with a huge number of privatisations going on. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah. How did that all work in terms of uh, the technology just kept improving and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and changes, ca changes came with it? Yeah, yeah. and you, you touched on there the importance of the relationships, I guess, in the, um, in the stockbroking industry. Yeah. Um, do you see that probably um, ever going away or do you always think people will always have a desire mm. to have a sounding board that they can um, genuinely relate to on both a personal level and a financial advice level? Do you think that will always be of relevance? Well, I do. I think capital markets continue to grow. Yeah. Uh, increasingly, there are more tools and more information available. But if you increase, and why technology provides that, you increase the amount of information, it's the more download that people can get. Yeah. Possibly a lot more questions that they yeah, can get. Can ask, and yeah. if they have a relationship, and that relationship can be very broad. I mean, when you think about it, people before all of this had relationships with their accountant or their, yeah. mm. their trusted bank manager or their solicitor or their stockbroker if they knew one. Mm. And most of them didn't know one, and the and stockbrokers didn't advertise, couldn't advertise, therefore 
decades. Oh, really? oh yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So it was ridiculous. Uh, really? So what it did is open open the world, the market, and the world is way more open now than it's yeah, ever right. been. <laughs> and do I think there'll always be a relationship? I think it's a necessary thing. Mm, mm, um, yeah. As people become wealthier, people need more advice around superannuation, financial planning, yeah. um, government regulations change, and uh, you can't be the lawyer or accountant and be all things to the one, one person, mm. I don't believe. Yeah. And a lot of people have tried it, and it's sort of worked in some ways, but not that well in others. No, yeah, yeah. no, it's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. yeah. Another thing we wanted to um, touch on with you, Tim, was the debate about um, companies and how they access capital, you know, public versus staying private. Just wondering what your views on that are. You know, obviously you've had a probably rough two years, I guess, in the public markets. Um, yeah, what are your views on the whole debate around um, pumping it, companies staying private versus going public yeah um well that debate's probably been going on way yeah. before i was born <laughs> uh, and i think will continue to go on and it look yeah. it goes in waves uh i think you're you're raising the issue of uh um be, be public or not public and yeah. uh and you know going public is not for everyone. Yeah, uh, yeah. I accept that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it going public provides a number of benefits that I think any company should consider. Mm. Now, the benefits that I believe may apply to a particular company, or they may not. But mm. some of those benefits, uh, and that hasn't changed. It doesn't matter whether it's two thousand and twenty-three or nineteen ninety. Yeah. Um, principal benefit is access to capital yeah. and um, and capital potentially provides funds growth yeah. you get new funds growth yeah. and uh, a lot of people were having that debate 12 months ago when interest rates were two percent or 18 months ago <laughs> when they were two percent and everyone didn't care because they could borrow money when yeah. interest rates are six or eight percent <laughs> and that's your access to new money whoa, do I really want to have, uh, you know, debt at three times my capital yeah, or two yeah. times or five times my capital? There's a lot more risks. Um, the other other reason why a lot of companies would think it's sensible to go public and, and the debate is uh, there's a positive brand recognition if you go comp yep. uh, if you go public. Yep. Also, a lot of people believe... Um, that uh, if you're a public company, your accounts are audited, so therefore you may have credibility, doesn't necessarily mean that. Also, going public does provide some liquidity for founders yep. Yep. and can provide succession. Now, we might argue you can do all those things with huge amounts of debt or private equity, but you know, private equity usually want to control you too. They don't want, yeah. they don't want 40%. Yeah. They really want 51% or more. Yeah. And uh, is that what uh, a lot of people want if they still think they've got 10 years or 15 years in the business? Yeah, uh, they think, well, maybe I don't want that. And a yeah, great yeah. example of that was uh, Apollo Motorhomes who yeah. had a mm. very, very attractive offer from private equity and they 
but private equity had to own 51% of them. You had two young guys who were running the business, yeah. and they said, well, hang on, I don't want to work for private equity for the next no. 15 years. I yeah, uh, yeah. love the idea of getting rid of debt uh, that private equity could provide, mm, uh, yeah. but you know, capital markets became an answer for them, and mm. you know, the rest is history. They're part of tourism holdings yeah, now yeah, and yeah. much bigger company. Mm. Also going public, I think, provides growth opportunities that you may never get, you can go offshore. Mm. And Screw Turner's a great example of that. Yeah, he, yeah. he walked around the world with, we well, had about 2,000 prospectuses left over at the time of the flight. <laughs> we printed too many, obviously. And he walked <laughs> around the world as he grew his business around the world, saying, I'm a public company, this is what we look like. And he used to hand out these fa fabulous uh, prospectus. So <laughs> awesome. he's a great advocate. Corporate yeah, yeah. travel followed that. Yeah. And they were both 100, they were $100 million oh, companies crazy. that are now $3 billion that's companies. Crazy. So I'm, I'm obviously passionate about the reasons yeah, for going public but yeah. as I say not for everyone but it's mm. good for a lot of people i hope yeah, screw sure. went around handing it, those uh, prospectuses out a bit safer than the way he first traveled the world on his <laughs> buses oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a bit free and loose I can <laughs> tell you. awesome all right and i guess yeah moving moving forward i guess now recently morgan's is starting to branch into new and exciting markets you touched on that um, being a benefit of going public, but I guess also there's a benefit um, for firms like um, such as Morgan's in accessing international markets. One of the recent um, recent things that Will's been telling me a lot about is Morgan's presence in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that for a bit, um, Tim, and what what you see as the opportunity um, there? Um, the world, with capital markets in the world are much bigger and deeper than Australia, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and Asia is a very significant uh, uh, area for capital and accessing capital. There's a huge number of uh, Asian funds, yeah. huge number of US and European funds have operations in Asia, and most of them really have representation out of Hong Kong. Mm, yeah. and. Uh, and or Singapore, and of course, they, at one stage they said they were all going to end up in China, but that that that's not going to be in my lifetime. So <laughs> I think uh, you'll see Hong Kong continue to go well. I think the yeah. Chinese have worked out it's sensible to have Hong Kong as a very significant world market and world capital centre. Yeah. So from a Morgan's perspective, if we can access some of that company by getting uh, that money, mm. those capital markets, by getting them to understand Australian companies a lot better, yep. huge yeah. advantage for Morgan's, huge, huge advantage for those Australian, uh, Australian companies. companies. Secondly, a presence there provides us with the opportunity to roadshow and take Australian companies into that mm. jurisdiction where they can eyeball the uh, various fund managers or whatever, and that's yeah. got to be some advantage over sure. time. So sure. that's yeah. their reason for Hong Kong. We got our toe in the water there. Yeah. Um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Oh, sounds, sounds very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another question we wanted to ask was... Um, about you know the sheer scale of Morgan. So Morgan's employs over 500 advisors across Jeez. its massive network. Mm. Um, how do you ensure quality of service when the team is that large? And yeah, we just find it crazy how mm. like you know it's such an expansive network and yeah, it's just still such a you know great outcome for clients all the time. Yeah. So can you speak to that for a bit? 
Yes, uh, to some extent, and again, technology has helped Help dramatically up. there yeah. in the that um, we've spent um, tens of millions of dollars on technology since mm. 2000, so yeah. we've invested very heavily in that area. Uh, technology's allowed way better record-keeping of advice yeah. Uh, that's uh, uh, records of advice, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Keeping records of advice. Uh, it also provides huge uh, opportunity in the transparency. Uh, yeah. Part of our technology investment has come with a, a big cost in terms of uh, our supervision, compliance, whatever. Uh, we've also invested really heavily in education of our yeah. advisors. And it's a combination uh, of all those things, the rigorous education requirements um, and coupled with technology and mm -hmm. compliance. I uh, can't say you can always keep total control of yeah, whatever, yeah. but also a very big investment in research. We have 24 analysts, yeah, it yeah. could be more, I don't, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> you, you might know. <laughs> but we, we've got a big investment in research, so the quality of research much better. Yeah. And uh, so, look, that's, that's helped dramatically. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. And because I know, I must say, you, you say Morgan's in the community and mo most people either are with them themselves or know sort of one or someone two. Someone who might work there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Might, might work there or has someone who's well, got a family about member involved. Well, there's about 900 to 1,000 people across the Morgan's family in Australia now. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm. That's that is nice. absolutely yeah. crazy. Um, yeah, so Tim, we're also keen to talk about some of your other non-Morgan stuff. So um, you're chairman of Eagers Automotive, another mm -hmm. company with a very long and proud history. Mm -hmm. Um how are you approached to be chair of that company and what do you think, um, you know, is needed to make a good chairman? I think our listeners would like to hear, you know, about um, what that sort of role entails for you. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I've ever thought about what makes a good chairman, but um, <laughs> I guess, uh, well, back uh, background, I guess, to Eagers. Yeah, yeah. Eagers, as you said, long, a terrific company and yeah. I'm very privileged to be chairman of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a hundred and... Must be 110 years oh, old now, well, or, yeah. or maybe yeah, 100 yeah, in in that order anyway. But um, Paul Morgan and I and Peter Evans were good mates of a fellow called Alan Piper, who was a uh, founder of the uh, Bad News Bears, as they used to be called, which became the Brisbane Lions. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. Alan Piper was. Uh, part of a company that we were involved in an IPO late 80s AP group yeah and AP group uh, which were a big Ford distributor yep. so sorry it's a bit of a roundabout story and a long <laughs> story but Alan Piper knew um, Nick Politis well as well because yep. Nick was a big Ford dealer uh, Sydney City Ford yep. and Nick Politis is chair of the Sydney the Roosters yeah, in Sydney, and he's also the largest shareholder in uh, Eagers with 29%. So anyway, cut a long story short, Alan had this dream about his company going public, which was yeah. a small Ford distributor, small by Eagers standards, but successful and mm. listed as AP Group. He had this absolute desire to get Holden, and Eagers was the premier Holden dealer in the whole of Queensland, if yeah. not Australia. 
and he had this dream to merge them and you know which was a really wild dream because uh, you know Eger's had all this uh, you know history and uh, sort of structure that yeah. a bit inconsistent with Alan anyway <laughs> cut a long story short Alan just kept chipping away and chipping away which he did um, because if he hadn't chipped away with the bad news bears the, the lines probably would never have happened yeah and he eventually got Eagers to merge with AP Group where he became yeah. a significant uh, shareholder yeah. in uh, Eagers yeah. And it was called AP Eagers. So the AP is Alan Piper yeah. and Eagers. Ah, okay. Alan sadly died young, and yeah, yeah. before he died, he said to the then chairman, so uh, in background, we had yeah. a lot to do with Alan Piper. We had something to do with the merging of the <laughs> company, so yeah. we were involved. Yeah. We, yeah. we knew all the players. Yeah. And the then chairman was a fellow, Ben McDonald. And Ben and Alan um, were able to create this merged group. And he said to Ben McDonald before he died, I want Nick Politis to own the shares. He's the only one I oh, wanted. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, it's a wonderful story. Ben McDonald rang uh, uh, Nick Politis and said, Alan's dying and he wants you to buy his shares. And Nick says, oh, uh, no, I'm at the airport. I'm flying to America. <laughs> I've got some business over there. And uh, But he said, tell Alan I'll buy his shares. He didn't even ask about the price. He said, just tell him I'll buy him. Really? And I'll buy him when I get back. And... Uh, and Ben McDonald said, when are you going to get back? And he said, oh, it could be 10 days, 12 days. He said he mightn't live that long. Anyway, cut a long story short, I think he did live that long. He got back and he said, Alan, buy your shares, whatever the price is, you know, market, and that was it. Yeah. So Nick became the biggest shareholder in AP Eagers. Yeah. And uh, AP Eagers then grew by merging with Automotive Holdings Group. Yeah. There were some board changes, as they do boards, uh, and um, I was lucky enough to be invited to join the board, I think it was 2011. Yeah. The uh, proxy houses, so I've been there too long, so it's <laughs> got to be about got to be about that time. 2011, <laughs> and when Ben McDonald retired as chair, I became chairman of Eagers, which yeah. is maybe five years ago. I have to have a look. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's my background, uh, uh, and I think the other part of your question was ma what makes a good chairman? Well, mm. I'm not sure, but I think a couple of simple rules. Uh, yeah. Good communication with all the other directors is mm. uh, absolutely crucial. Yeah. Directors and the chairman. Chairman's just one guy. You have yeah. chairman of the audit and risk, and you have chairman of REM, and you have... So there's chairman everywhere and they're all, and they're all directors yeah, and yeah. but you've got to have really solid communication between the chairman and all other directors but you've also got to have companies that I observe that I think work better or best are where the CEO and the chair have a good working relationship yeah. yep. and uh, the third thing is I think the chairman's got to have a deep interest in the company. It doesn't mm. mean to. Uh, it doesn't. He doesn't need to be an expert because, boy, I'm no expert in the car industry. I mm. learn something every time I go to a meeting because yeah, we got yeah. really we got fellows on the board who 
car experience everywhere. So uh, I'm always learning something every day when I talk to Keith Thornton, who's the current yeah, managing yeah. director. I'm learning something new about about the motor industry. So you know, good working relationship with the CEO, uh, a deep interest in the business, and very much um, good communication with other directors. Yep. yep. Mm. No, no, that's really really interesting insight because I think by the sounds of it, those those values and um, sort of principles around your mm. leadership would hold probably no matter what the company actually does, yes. it seems to be applicable ac- across yeah. across most sectors and industries. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Good. Yeah, awesome. All right, so thanks for this discussion, Tim. It's been great. The last question we like to um, ask our guests to round out the discussion is um, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old version of yourself? Oh, what advice <laughs> to a twenty-year-old version of myself? Years ago, so, make can sure I you give stay you, out of Can I give you a couple of observations <laughs> of things that I've learnt, and then maybe yeah, I'll yeah. try and come up with something around For advice? Sure. That, that sounds, sounds good. good. Yeah, but I um, maybe yeah. Um, What's tougher, financial advice or this, uh, Tim? Giving this or financial? No, advice? No, just things <laughs> I try to. Um, Things that where I've observed lots of business, I've been lucky enough to observe lots of businesses, lots yeah. of people, yeah, yeah. whatever, and you see things. And I've tried to pick up on a few things that, uh, you know, what's made the difference. Not just the financial services industry; it could be things I've seen the real estate industry or the car industry, or the. Mm. And I try to think about, oh, is that guy like this or that? So, just mm. a couple of things which I. When I ask, I usually give a, a long answer, but yeah. success often comes from uh, if you're a successful CEO or whatever, it, it, it most likely will come from hard work yeah. uh, and um, person being curious, being willing to learn new ideas. Mm. Um, you've got to... You've got to commit to what you're doing. If you're if you're half there, you're nowhere. Yeah. Um, integrity is crucial. Um, and uh, um, just one thing that someone said to me uh, that there's three kinds of people in the world. That there's those who make things happen. Yeah. There's those who watch things happen. And there's those who don't even know what's happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, 80, there's the 80 20 rule, you know, 20% of the people yeah. make a difference. So try and be in the 20%. Uh, and you want to be in the group that, if you can, mm. make things happen. Um, so, you know, the 80 20 rule, be part of those who make things happen. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that comes from attitude, work ethic. It doesn't come overnight. It's uh, patience. Yeah. Overall, Peter Evans will give you a word, be consistent in life. You've got to be yeah. consistent around business. You've got to be consistent about your relationships. You've got to be consistent with your behaviour. Yeah. I mean, we're all different, so yeah, yeah. that level of consistency will be different. But you've got to be consistent if you, if you're just wishy-washy or whatever. Yeah. You don't, you don't get anywhere. Um, so what, uh, what advice? Um, can I just tell you one thing that I think has really helped me in my entire career? Yeah. 
and I went to, in the early 90s, I reckon it was, I went to Dick Pratt, founded Pratt Industries Busy yeah. Board, yeah. And, and, and I'll never forget, I, I was, we floated Queensland Cotton in 1992, and I was down in Melbourne talking to fund managers, and I was in Dick Pratt's office at six o'clock at night talking to his son-in-law who was the fund manager for Pratt Industries trying to tell him why they should invest in Queensland Cotton that we were floating. Yeah. And the floor was vacant and we could hear Dick Pratt at the other end of the floor giving it to his US operator over there <laughs> yeah. who, who uh, things weren't going well in the US and he just, he kept saying, just say what I want to hear. You know what I want to hear. Just say it. And what he was trying to say was uh, he wanted the bloke to say, I think I've effed up, you know, yeah, I've yeah, buggered yeah. it up. Yeah. And he, the bloke wasn't wanting to say it and Dick just stayed on him anyway. It stuck in my mind. I thought, gee, that's interesting. So about two weeks later, I, I, Dick Pratt was speaking at some, I think it was like that cedar function they had about his business career yeah. I said oh, I've got to go to this so I went along <laughs> and there was Dick Pratt and he said oh look you know I, I've come up the hard way uh, yeah. I've invested 750 million and that's back in the early 90s in the US and I can tell you I've done my shirt and things are gradually changing and where it's now a multi-billion dollar company his son runs it over there yeah. but and he said in my whole business career, there's three things that I always do in any situation where there's a problem. And he said, I've never forgot it, and I try to d use it myself. I say it to people in here when there's a problem or there. Yeah. First one is, what is going on here? Dick Pratt said, I always I try to identify the problem, nail it. Don't talk about all these issues and this is happening and that. Yeah. What's going on here? Question one, what is going on here? Yeah. So if you can define the problem, good. Question two is, what is it we're trying to achieve? What are we going to... What is it we're trying to do? Yeah. So that forces people to think and give a clear answer. Yeah. And third thing is, well, what are we going to do about it? So yeah. what decision? What are we going to do? We've now identified the problem. Um, what is it we're trying to achieve? Yeah. So, so that provides some clarity. So, you know, if you think about it, in a lot of situations, oh, this happened, or this happened, or this blew up, yeah. just apply those three principles. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the old Dick Pratt thing, uh, I Incredible. think, was has been very helpful to me. Um, and I guess if I can just... Uh, couple of uh, one-liners that I use that people uh, tell me I'm a dinosaur, but uh, <laughs> you, you can't get milk from a cow by sending it an email. And if you think about it, emails are a great communication source. They are a great uh, ability for us to be able to send information or whatever. But if you really want to get something from someone, you send them an email and expect to get what you think you want to get, you yeah. pick up the phone, you talk to them. Yeah. Client, most clients don't want an email. No. Yeah, they love to get the information on email, mm. but they want to hear from someone. Yeah. If you're selling something, mm. 
wonder how many real estate people sell houses by sending people email. They flood the market with emails providing the information. Mm. So it's an information source. So you can't yeah. get milk from a cow. And that's not mine. That came from the business school, Cornell University. The professor yeah, yeah. there used to teach it to all, all the young graduates who probably told him he was yesterday's man or something. But <laughs> now half of them probably work on Wall Street. They might remember that bloody can't get milk from a cow by and the other one that I, you gotta you gotta do a lot of people won't look at it bad news never gets better with age yeah. so if you've got bad news or there's bad news in your business or yeah. something's going it doesn't get better with age you actually get it out there communicate mm -hmm. it talk about it do don't you don't cover it up you don't tell we'll go here or we'll go that Bad news never gets better with age. Yeah. So, uh, awesome. in all of that, uh, maybe uh, try and keep your feet on the ground. Yeah. Because uh, uh, laugh at yourself, have a yeah. sense of humour, mm, yeah. and you've got to be able to laugh at yourself, <laughs> particularly when someone is taking the piss out of you or wants yeah. to have a go. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah. And uh, a lot of chief executives I've witnessed over the years, their feet somehow go off the ground. Mm. They start to drink their own bathwater. They, they mm. actually uh. think they're the cleverest person in the room, and they're usually not. Uh. And uh, that happens with directors, it happens with chief executives. It's just, you know, keep your feet in the ground, mm. have the humility, have the ability to laugh at yourself. Yeah. yeah, awesome. No, well, that's a great note to end on. Yeah, um, they're great insights, Tim, and we yeah, yeah. really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for sharing that's so right. much of your story about Morgans um, and then also your time at Eagers and then more, more broadly, probably what I enjoyed just as much as anything was that, that last five minutes or so of those, those lessons because I think, yeah, they hold true no matter what industry or, or sector you're yeah. operating in. Yeah, they yeah. do. They do, and you see it, uh, yeah. see it everywhere. Exactly. No, thanks a lot, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Business Of. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating and following us on your chosen podcast platform, LinkedIn and Instagram, as it helps others find us.